Well, um, you're all, I'm sure, familiar with Laura Ingalls Wilder from her Little House on the Prairie books. Um, but, but before she wrote those books, from 1911 till uh, 1924, she regularly wrote pieces for a newspaper called the Missouri Ruralist. It's a catchy name for a newspaper, isn't it? The Missouri Ruralist. Um, but the genre of her writing for that paper was somewhere between social commentator and advice columnist. So, so she wrote uh, pieces ranging everywhere from, from supporting women's rights to vote during that time to uh, talking about how to raise chickens on your property. It was, it was quite the uh, breadth of, of advice that she'd give. You can actually read them. They're, they're all compiled now in a, in a book called The Little House in the Ozarks. Yeah, I think you can get it on Amazon. Um, but all these articles that she wrote. How, in one of her articles, though, uh, that tended be, to be more toward the social commentary side of things, uh, Wilder's talking about being careful how we assess people around us. And she makes this comment. She says, Persons appear to us according to the light we throw upon them from our own minds. Persons appear to us according to the light we throw upon them from our own minds. And, and in that piece, Wilder's making the point that if we, if we only have our own personal perception of someone, if that's the only light we have uh, to see by or to throw on the situation, so to speak, uh, well, then we can find ourselves not properly understanding that person. So it's wise advice that she's giving. Uh, but, it, but it's advice that reaches further than, than just our perception of people. We can think of countless situations where uh, if all we have is the light of our own minds to throw, as she put it, uh, if that's all we've got, then we're not going to be able to interpret things accurately. And, and this is nowhere more true than in the context of our lives of faith. Uh, as we go through life and its experiences seeking to follow the Lord, um, as we navigate the world around us, if all we have is the light of our own minds to see by, uh, well, we know that the Christian life can quickly become confusing. It can become discouraging. We can be disoriented. We need more uh, than the light of our own minds, which is why, of course, uh, we need the Scriptures so badly. So we need the light of God's truth if we're going to have a right perception of what it looks like to live uh, life following the Lord in the world around us, navigate our experiences in the world and so on. We need the light of truth. We need the Scriptures. And we don't just need the New Testament Scriptures, uh, but this is also why we need the Old Testament Scriptures as well. Uh, Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians 10 when he tells the believers at Corinth that, that the events that took place in the Old Testament took place and are given to us as an example and for our instruction. So, so Paul purposefully brings up the fact that these Old Testament Scriptures aren't just here as, as, a, as an old dusty narrative that we can work our way through, but as Christian believers, uh, even though the, 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 the context of the Old Testament narrative is, is so far removed, both culturally and historically from us, the Old Testament narratives come to us in a way that serve a very instructional and, uh, and, and clarifying purpose. They serve uh, to help us have uh, light to see by as we live our lives as Christian believers. And so as we come to chapter 3 of, of 1 Samuel, uh, I was thinking about this because chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, uh, particularly and in a pointed way, uh, demonstrates this reality that Paul speaks about, demonstrates our own need, and that, that as we come to Scriptures, we do have light to see uh, what's going on in current circumstances around us. And, and specifically in chapter 3, as we come here, uh, this chapter will shed light on, on what we should expect when we live in a context where people are far from God. And, and this is a very important subject for us to think through. What, what should we expect when the world around us seems so far from God? What, what do you expect as you look out at the world right now? 
And again, and again if we're applying uh, Wilder's words, you know, by, by, the, by the light of my own mind, if I look around at the way things are at the moment, I can certainly be left in a hopeless, uh, with a hopeless sensation. After all, the world around is so far from God. Uh, we hear the noise of the journalists and the sociologists and the politicians and those uh, voices are so loud. But by the light of my own mind, if that's all I have to go on, I, I, I might very well be tempted to look out at the context of the world, especially thinking just in terms of our own immediate context, and think everything is so hopeless. After all, here we are again this weekend with, with riots in our downtown streets, shops broken into, damaged, uh, more sh- shots fired. Now that's, that's just our town. That's just this weekend. The world is, is so far from God, and, and we look around, and by the light of our own minds, it can seem very gloomy, very hopeless, and very dim. And so, and so what should we expect as we look out? Uh, are, are things really this hopeless? Is God indifferent? How, how can we make sense of all this? Which, again, is where 1 Samuel 3 comes in to help us. Because, uh, first of all, if we just think about the, the context of 1 Samuel, we can be reminded that people are very far from God in Israel during this time. And we keep reminding ourselves of this, but the book of Judges, which gives the historical setting for our studies in Samuel, the book of Judges makes it clear that at this time in Israel's history, we remember the refrain now, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So there's disregard for the Lord uh, pervasively and generally in the land. And then we saw last time in chapter 2, this disregard for the Lord isn't isolated only to the general population of Israel, uh, but it's actually at its peak among the priests themselves. So, so Eli in his passivity toward the things of God, and then Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in their extreme disregard and defamation uh, for, for the ways of God, this context we see is one of spiritual disaster. And and what should we expect in a situation like this? What should we expect as we see people so far from God around us? Well, 1 Samuel 3 comes and then brings us some help along these lines. It gives us some light to see by. And so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, take the time to work through this passage. We'll actually work through it in in four uh, different parts. And we'll do so uh, seeking to, to answer this question along the way. Uh, what, what do we expect when people are far from God? And so if you look at the text, we'll start with verse 1. And, and the first thing we can expect is verse 1 helps us. Um, even though it, it might not seem very encouraging to think about this right away, it's a necessary place to start. We can expect that uh, when people are far from God, uh, we, we can expect the Word of God to be predominantly absent. We can expect the Word of God to be predominantly absent. So just look again at verse 1 where we read, The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. We can almost snicker at that. It sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? They're not widespread. We don't hear much about it these days. What is, what is the text telling us? The text is telling us that God is not speaking to His people. God, God is silent. So so here we have a description of Israel that reflects an absence of the Lord's Word coming to His people. The the prophets, who at this time uniquely were tasked with reminding the people of God with the Word of God. Of course, we remember from from the end of Deuteronomy, I think it was chapter 31, where where Moses wrote down what we call the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible. He'd written all that down and put that truth into the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is now there at Shiloh, uh, but far be it from people to, to to have that read to them now, and, and far be it from them to be paying any attention 
attention to the Word of God. Uh, not only is that going on, but at the same time, prophets were largely absent on the public scene. So, so there were, were rare, only rare occurrences of, of people being reminded by the, the men of God uh, what God had said. Now, now, we do remember last week in chapter 2, they do show up now and again. So last week in chapter 2, we're told the man of God, which is that, that technical way to reference a prophet. Uh, chapter 2, verse 27, the man of God comes and he gives this word to Eli about, about his judgment because Eli's uh, abdicated his role as priest and judge and all of these things. Uh, but even there, when we read about that man of God coming, no name is given. He kind of comes out of nowhere and leaves into nowhere again. Um, he's just a passing character. Uh, so we have a prophet or two that might show up. But as we read in verse 1, the word of the Lord is predominantly absent. And while we're not given a direct reason for this absence in our text, we can be pretty clear on what's going on as we interpret this situation with other scriptures. Uh, so for example, uh, if we read in the book of Amos, later on in Israel's history, so Amos chapter 8, uh, there the Lord says through the prophet Amos, he says, look, the days are coming when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. This is going to be a famine of the word of the Lord that comes to Israel. Um, he's, he's not going to be speaking to his people. And that's going to take place according to Amos chapter 2 because the people have habitually uh, rejected the instruction of God. So, so there's going to be a famine of the word of God because the people have been rejecting the word of God. They, they, they've stopped paying attention to his word. And we have the same thing in places like Psalm 74 where the psalmist is, is lamenting the sorrow that God's people are facing because of their disobedience to God. And the psalmist describes part of their languishing condition as God's people by saying there's no longer any prophet. God's word isn't coming to us. So, so as we trace instances of the absence of God's word through the scriptures, a pretty clear theme develops that when the word of God is disregarded, the word of God becomes absent which reflects not only the disregard of the people, but it reflects the active judgment of God in these things. To, to reject the word of life is to get what you want. No life-giving word from God. Which in the end is not, is not freedom, but it leaves people to languish in conditions of sorrow and decay and anguish and all of these things. Romans 1 is the grand commentary on all of that, isn't it? Where, where Paul's speaking about the world's condition and he, and he, and he says how, how we rejected the Creator and so in judgment the Lord gives us over to our rebellious desires and it's a total disaster. And this is exactly the, 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 the case that's going on there for the people of Israel in Samuel's day and that they'd come through the period of the judges uh, doing what was right in their own eyes. The priesthood itself, which should have been a, a bulwark of faith promoting and nurturing fidelity to God's word. The priests were instead the, the chief violators of God's word. And so we come to what's here in the beginning of chapter 3, and it's just not that surprising. When people are far from God, we can expect the word of God to be predominantly absent. They don't want God's word of life. God, in his judgment, removes his word of life, and you're left where you're at. And, and isn't that exactly what we see in the world around us so often? You just think about this in our own day. It's not just that people are indifferent to the Scriptures in our day. They're not just indifferent to the Word of God in our day. But we live in a time when people can be accused of hate and, and hostility for upholding the divine and historic truths of the Bible. We live in a day when there's not just an indifference to God's Word around us. No, more than that, we live in a day when there's active public and, and even litigious animosity towards God's Word around us. And what's the result? What do we see happening? Well, the Word of God that they want gone is gone. 
the life-giving Word of, of God for His Creator is replaced by the twistings of our own mind, the, the wisdom and, and even things like the forgiveness and forbearance and, and morality that leads to physical and social flourishing, just even on a general revelation level, even just in the most general terms, that is, that is gone for us. Instead, there's estrangement, isn't there? There's bitterness, there's enmity, there's resentment, all of these things. There's no, there's no such thing as forgiveness, it seems, in our time. All of this, all of this uh, languishing around us. And what do we expect when people are far from God? Well, we expect that in the passing of time as things go on, God's Word is removed uh, from the situation, which is exactly what we see going on in our day. There, there, is, there, there is no life-giving Word of God present. Instead, the life-giving Word of God is rejected, and we see uh, the entanglement that that then takes hold all around us. So we expect that, that in, these kinds of, in these kinds of times, this could be the case. Um, rebellion against God overshadows any repentance towards God, and we expect the Word of God then to be predominantly absent. So, so it's no surprise when we read things in the news or see the developments in society being what they are, the Word of God is, is predominantly gone, which, which isn't a surprise. So, so the instruction of 1 Samuel here, it helps us with our expectations. Well, when people, whether personally or as a society, are far from God, we can expect that the Word of God will be absent in this way. However, this is hardly the end of the matter, is it? Because when people are far from God, not only do we see His Word is predominantly absent for a time, but the witness of Scripture is that in time, His Word will also be intensely revealed again. His word will be revealed. And this is what we see in verses 2 to 10 now as we keep working through this. So, so if you look at the passage there, the context is set by verse 1 with this absence of the word of God. And then verse 2 starts in an interesting way. It starts with this character Eli and his failing eyesight. Now, now just in order to appreciate the craftsmanship of, of the narrative and some emphasis here, it's interesting to take note of this mention of Eli's failing eyesight. You read through the narrative and on a surface level, why do we care? Why, why do we care that Eli needs bifocals now or whatever it is? Why would, we, why would that bother us? But, but we, we need to, to see what the, the, the craftsmanship of, of, the, of the chapter here in terms of a, in terms of a, a narrative. So, so think through this. At this time in Israel's history, prophets were, were not referred to prophets as often as they were referred to as seers. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, there's a reference to that, that prophets used to be called seers, now they're called prophets. So prophets were referred to as seers uh, because the idea was that they received visions from God, which they would then communicate to the people. Through those visions, uh, God's word and, and revelation would be brought to the people. And here Eli is immediately brought into our narrative and described as one with failing eyesight. So it, Eli's not a seer. And in just a physical sense, maybe we read that at first, except further down in this passage in verse 13 where Eli's condemned again for not stopping his son's terrible behavior, that that's actually the same word translated stop in verse 13 that we have in verse 2 translated failing. And it's a Hebrew word that only shows up, I think, is it 11 or 14 times in the whole Old Testament? Two times it shows up in one passage, so that makes us pay attention to it. It's a Hebrew word that actually speaks to being restrained or restricted. So Eli's sight is restricted, just like he didn't restrict his sons from their disobedience. So, so you see, there's a, there's a play on the term here, and, and then it's, it's clear to us that Israel needed a seer if they're going to have God's word, and Eli, what is Eli? He is a complete failure at this task. 
Eli is not a seer. He does not understand the things of God. He's, he's physically maybe not able to see very well, but more than that, he's prophetically blind. So, so much so that if you remember back in chapter 1 when he sees Hannah praying, he actually refers to her as a daughter of wickedness. Remember that technical term? A daughter of wickedness because he thinks he's, she's drunk. All the while, chapter 2, we find out that his sons are actually sons of wickedness. But does he have eyes to see the difference? No, there's Hannah praying in righteousness. And his sons, he's got no, he's, he has no dealings with them at all. He's not doing anything about this. So is Eli, he's got this spiritual blindness going on, which is just a punctuation mark on, on his failure, but also on Israel's condition to have, to have no word uh, coming from the Lord. However, all that's about to change. Because while the Word of God can be predominantly absent when people are far from God, God is a God, as we know, of extraordinary mercy. He's, he's a God who extends undeserved kindness. And into the darkness where there's no seer, He reveals Himself. Well, which he does with some intensity here, if you look at this. So, so we have sightless Eli there in verse 2, and, and it's nighttime, so he's lying in his usual place. Well, where is that? I don't know. We don't, we don't know. However, Samuel's also gone to lie down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was located. So, so we're going to talk much more about the ark in upcoming chapters, but we can just note that the ark, uh, the ark of the covenant, it was the, the physical, uh, visible manifestation of the Lord's presence and power among His people. That's the Ark of the Covenant. So, so right here we notice that, that wherever Eli, the, the non-seer, lays down for the night, you know, just like wherever he normally does, falls asleep in his lazy boy or whatever it is, uh, we also know that Samuel's laying down in the presence of God. So there's something significant about that. And in that context, the Lord begins to call Samuel. The, the verb to call is actually repeated 11 times in verses 4 to 10. So there's, there's an intensity communicated just in that repetition. But the Lord calls Samuel. He calls him the first time. And, and in verse 4, Samuel answers, here I am. Which, by the way, is exactly how Moses answered at the burning bush. In fact, there's a number of parallels between Moses and Samuel here that we don't have the time to get into. But, but we're being, we're, we, we know Israel needs a Moses. Israel needs a prophet of God. Israel needs that. And here we're being given this picture that, oh, here comes one. Here comes one. God calls. Samuel responds in a Moses kind of way. Here I am. But Samuel doesn't get what's happening yet. He thinks Eli's calling him. So, so he goes into Eli. Eli says he didn't call him. Go lie down. So Samuel goes back. Eli's down. Lord calls again, Samuel. Samuel goes to Eli. Eli said he didn't call, go back and lay down. So what do we know about Eli? Well, Eli may be a bad parent. He's not a, he's not a very good dad, but he's got the bedtime routine down. He, he knows how this is supposed to work. You think you heard something? It's nothing. Go back to bed. You think you heard something? It's nothing. Go back to bed. So he's not parent of the year, but at least Eli's got that drilled down. So he's doing that with Samuel. Verse 7, um, we actually have a, a little explanation of what's happening. So, the, so there's a break in this calling part, and, and, the, and the narrator gives us some, some more information. Uh, because at this point, there might be a little bit of tension. You know, we had a lot of hope in Samuel, but God's calling, he doesn't see. God's calling, he doesn't figure it out. Eli, he can't see, so we're not surprised he's not putting things together. But, 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 but we're a little bit concerned now. We thought Samuel might be a pretty significant figure, but he's not figuring this out. However, we're told in verse 7 um, that, that uh, Samuel doesn't recognize God's call because he doesn't yet know the Lord. Because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So, so this is important because, because Samuel is actually described in the same way that Eli's boys are described earlier in the fact that they didn't know the Lord. However, Eli's boys, Hophni and Phinehas, they're described as not knowing the Lord because uh, with relationship to their total defiance 
and, 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 and rejection of the things of, of God. They, they had a, a culpable rejection of, of God's way. They were, they were uh, condemned for that. Samuel doesn't know the Lord also, like the text tells us, but it's different. He, he doesn't know the Lord because he had yet to have direct experience with God. So, so Yahweh has not revealed his word to Samuel yet. Samuel's not heart of heart. We're not supposed to think that. The narrator's just interjecting that, that he's just new at this, so give him a minute. He's not like Ophni and Phineas. He's just, he's just new at this. So then in verse 8, we're back. God calls Samuel a third time, and Samuel goes to Eli. And now Eli, who has clearly proved that he has dim vision, which is very spiritually dim. He finally gets what's going on. He says to Samuel, go back, lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel goes back to bed, and the Lord calls again, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel responds, speak, for your servant is listening. It's interesting there that he doesn't say, speak, Lord, like Eli told him to. He just says, speak. Now, commentators have a field day with that, but there may be something in the, in the recognition that Samuel is, is, is wary of uh, using God's name as something that we actually see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, wary of saying the name Yahweh. Eli does it, but he, what does he know about Eli? Well, Eli, Eli is on the fringes. I'm sure certainly Samuel would have noticed this already, the spirituality that's reflected there in that family. So, so this may reflect simply some, some reverential caution on the part of Samuel. He says, speak, for your servant is listening. And then on into verse 11, the Lord speaks to him, which we'll look at in just a moment. But what we can see right here is that in the context of Israel in general, where people are very far from God, and in a context where, where the temple is managed by a priest whose spiritual vision is blurry at best, in that situation, the word of God has been absent. However, ultimately, the Lord doesn't leave his people without his word. Instead, he reveals it, and he reveals his word with a, with a notable and, and kind of pervasive intensity, J- just as we see this unpacked here. So, so, so not only is the verb call used 11 times in seven verses here, which is a, a kind of a narratival tool to help us em- uh, focus our attention on what's happening. Clearly, this is about God calling to Samuel. Uh, but we also see an amping up of the intensity of the Lord's call throughout the text. So, so in verse 4, for example, we're just told the Lord called to Samuel. That's it. We get to verse 6, we're told the Lord called to Samuel again, and this time he says his name, Samuel. By the time we get to verse 10, the Lord calls his name twice, and we're told that the Lord stood there. So you see this this ratcheting up of the Lord's intense intense pursuit of Samuel as he comes to him calling his name. So, So whatever it means that the Lord stood there, it's a little bit hard to sort out because then in verse 15 we're told this was just a vision. Whatever it was, in this final encounter, the Lord didn't just call Samuel's name once, but twice, and in some way he was uniquely present there as well. So the Lord came, we read, he stood there and called out, Samuel, Samuel. So, So there's a specific ratcheting up of intensity of the Lord's call as he determines to make himself known to Samuel, who didn't really know him yet, uh, in, in a context, of course, where God's word had been rejected. So, so while the priest can hardly figure this out, he's blind to it. We see the Lord's pursuit there of his purpose in the context of spiritual blindness and decay. He's coming to Samuel with his word, and Samuel is going to know it's him. He shows up. And, and so we see both in the words that are chosen here and in the general events of this narrative that the Lord is bringing about a, a, a drastic change in the current conditions. The people of God are far from him. The priests have defiled his way and his people. As a result, the Lord's word has been largely absent. 
But now, as, as an expression of God's great kindness, things are going to change, and that change is going to happen because the Lord is set on making His revealed Word known. He doesn't try once and quit. He pursues with His revealed Word. And again, we can just note the example that this sets for us. There's truth here for our own encouragement in our own day. And, and I tell you, this, this is encouragement that we need. So, so, so what do we expect when people are far from God? Well we, well, we do expect that God's Word will be predominantly absent from life around us, and that's so true in our, in our place and time and day. But we can also expect that the Lord won't leave things that way. This, this is the witness of Scripture. The Lord may be silent for a season, but He never stays silent. His Word breaks through. This is a reality that's proved true time and, de- time, and time again through the narrative of Scripture. And it's something that's proved true time and time again, even down and into contemporary history. Right? The Lord may be silent for a season, but He never stays silent. His Word per- persistently breaks through. So, so even if we think in terms of, of more recent ancient history... Um, For example, in the 18th century with the Great Awakening in the United States, when many, many, many people came to Christ under the preaching of the Word of God, under the preaching of the Gospel, the Great Awakening came when secular rationalism appeared to be squeezing Scripture out of people's minds and hearts in the 18th century. It seemed like the Word was gone. God's Word was all but absent. But into that context of a seeming absent Word from God, the Gospel came with great power. God's Word came with power, and many people came to Christ and found life in the Great Awakening. Or even more recently, you take, take the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. That came in the midst of the, of the sexual revolution where any kind of scriptural morality had been brazenly tossed away. But into that, for all the quirks of that movement, Into that, the Word of God came with intense power, and many were saved under the sound of the gospel during that time. And then we think of our own time. Clearly, the Word of God is slighted in our day, to say the least. It's far gone. It's predominantly absent right now. But what does a passage like this teach us? What does even historical reflection on the way God works teach us? Well, we're taught that when things seem to be at their most gone in terms of fidelity to God's Word, it's when the priests are sleeping with the ladies at the temple gates, for example, it's then that the Word of God comes, and it comes with intensity. Samuel's called, Samuel, uh, Samuel's called, Samuel's realizing a manifestation of the presence of the Lord. The Lord comes with significant intensity to make His Word known, which is something we can take great encouragement from. Because instead of looking around at our current climate thinking that we're all doomed because so much of God's revelation has been aggressively and even combatively disregarded, instead of losing hope, this gives us cause to be down on our knees praying for revival. Because these are the exact kind of circumstances into which the Lord's Word breaks out with great power. This is the witness of history. This is the witness of Scripture. As believers, we can look around and be hopeful because Scripture and history records that time and time again when things get low and the Word of Christ is rejected, the Word of God is rejected, what happens? God steps in in a powerful and persistent way in order to make His Word known. So what do we expect when people are far from God? We expect the Word of God to be predominantly absent, but then... Following that darkness, we also expect the Word of God to be intensely revealed. And then we keep going here in verses 11 to 18, um, where we see that that, that when the Word of God comes, uh, when it does come, we see that it's often a uniquely difficult word. 
We see this in verses 11 to 18, don't we? Where, where the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and it's not an easy word. So, so he speaks to Samuel about something he's going to do in Israel uh, very shortly, which is something we'll see happen here in the next, in the next chapters. And then he also uh, refers directly to Eli's judgment and the judgment on Eli's family, uh, which we talked about in more detail last week. But, but the Lord says to Samuel, uh, not only are Eli's sons cursing God by their activity, but Eli himself hasn't stopped them. So Eli bears guilt for that. Um, Eli is described later as a judge over Israel. So not only in his, in his high position as a judge over Israel, but also in his position as, as, as Hophni and Phinehas' dad. He should have stopped his boys, but he didn't. And so because of the iniquity of Eli and his family, the Lord is going to, is going to judge them. There's no way out of that. 11 to 14 makes that clear. That judgment is coming. That's what, that's what he says to Samuel. Now, just put yourself in Samuel's place. What's the, what's the new word they use when you start a new job? Now, it used to be orientation. Now, there's another. Onboarding. Onboarding is a new word. Or is there a newer one? Or is that about where we're at? Onboarding? So imagine, imagine this is Samuel's onboarding experience to the work of a prophet. How, how is this going for him? You just put yourself in his place for a minute. The Lord wakes him up multiple times in the middle of the night to tell him the person who is his caretaker. We started the chapter by saying he's serving the priest there in the Lord's presence. So he and Eli are intimately connected in terms of the service of the Lord there, whatever that, whatever that looked like. But the Lord wakes him up to tell him that this head priest and his family are going to be totally wiped out. Samuel, I've got something to tell you. Just so you know, the person who you're serving with, I'm going to take him out and there's no atoning for their sin. They are done. That family line is over. How's that for, for day one of, of onboarding? Right? Let there be no doubt that the prophet business is not going to be for the faint of heart, which will prove true in Samuel's ministry. So, so Samuel hears this difficult ministry, and the text says he lays down till morning, verse 15. It doesn't say he slept. He just lays down till morning. He can't go back to Eli because he's bugged him too many times. He's certainly not going to go to sleep after all that. He just lays down till morning. Uh, he can't sleep. And then in the morning, Eli obviously wants to know what happened. It's interesting that Eli waits till morning too, isn't it? What would you do if you were Eli? Wouldn't you be just waiting out there, Samuel, going maybe a couple hours just to shake him? Samuel, the, the word of the Lord came. This is extraordinary. What did the word of the Lord say? No, Eli, he was fine just sleeping through the night himself. So Eli sleeps, gets up in the morning, um, and, 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 and maybe he figured out because of Samuel's expression, or maybe it's a, a kind of a telltale heart situation, and he's got that guilty conscience. He remembers the, the man of God's word to him that we read about in chapter 2. But, but Eli knows that there's this word the Lord spoke to Samuel. We're told Samuel's afraid to, 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 help, to tell him, so maybe it's just Samuel's expression is giving it away. But in verse 17, Eli pushes Samuel to make sure Samuel gives him the whole thing. And in fact, and this is, must be where Hophni and Phinehas learned it, uh, Eli threatens Samuel. You've got to tell me the whole thing or what? Well, he tells him, God may punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Eli, uh, Samuel is just not having a good 24 hours. He's woken up in the middle of the night. He's given this heavy message of the Word of God, the judgment on the house of Eli. Now Eli's coming to him, who's clearly not a morning person, and he's telling him, if you don't give me the story straight, I'm going to bring down curses from God on you. So what does Samuel do? Well, uh, we read there, he responded, um, and Samuel tells him everything and did not hide anything, verse 18 saying the same thing two times, but that emphasizes it, doesn't it? He told him everything and did not hide anything. Samuel says, okay, you want it, you got it. And Eli responds in a way that's somewhat surprising. He responds by saying, he is the Lord, 
Let him do what he thinks is good. There's actually another play on the eyesight theme here. Eli literally says, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. So Eli has dim spiritual perception. He doesn't have eyes to see the things of God. But even in his own dimness, he knows God sees. And amazingly, he submits himself to God's divine prerogative, even if it's the hard word of judgment. So so we do find something worth commending in Eli in in the final round here. And even as we put all this together, what do we expect when people are far from God? Well, we expect God's word to be predominantly absent. But with time, we can also expect God's word to be intensely revealed. And not just that, but when it's revealed, it should be no surprise if the word of God is both a uniquely difficult word and also a word that is yielded to by the people who come under the sound of that word. Which is, which is just something so profound for us to think through. Certainly, if the Lord were to grace us with a renewed outpouring of His truth in our time, it would be a hard word for our society, wouldn't it? Would be, it would be a stirring up of, of, of gospel preaching and gospel witness that would be a heavy word for us. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be everything is fine and peaceful. Just go on like you are. You're doing a really good job of being humans. That would not be God's word for us in our time. His word would be difficult for us if it comes in a kind of revival power. It would be a hard word. And when God's difficult word comes, even in that, so often those who have, been, who have been twisted up in their hearts, what do we see? Well, they yield like Eli yields. Well, what a thing that would be. What a thing to pray for, not only for our own hearts, that we would be sensitive toward the hard words of God and yield to them, but that the culture around us, the society around us, would be put in a place where they come under the sound of God's renewing, redeeming, life-giving, even hard words, and they find themselves in a posture of yielding to that word as well. But what, what do we expect when people are far from God? Well, we expect the Word of God to be predominantly absent, but then intensely revealed. And when it's intensely revealed, it oftentimes comes in a very heavy way. But what do we see in the context of that heaviness? You do see a yielding. Because God's Word is performative. And it brings about that kind of result that He desires it uh, to bring. And so we put all that together and, and we notice that there's one more thing we can say about this here where, where we can also expect uh, the word of the Lord won't, won't just be a heavy word when it comes, but it will also extensively spread. That's what we see in verse 19 on through the end there, just real, real quickly. Samuel grew, we're told, the Lord was with him, and what took place? Well, the Lord fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. So that takes us back to Deuteronomy 18, what's a true test of a prophet? The things they say actually happen. That's why you can watch YouTube and know none of them are prophets because none of it actually happens. Right? Right? What's, the, what's the confirmation of a prophet? When they say things, it comes to pass. And all Israel from Dan, so that's way up north, to Beersheba, which is all the way down south. So from top to bottom, Israel knew that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. And, and, and so while at the beginning of all this, the word of the Lord was absent, now the word of the Lord extensively spreads. So verse 21, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Samuel's word came to all Israel. So what do we expect when people are far from God? Well, we expect the word of God to be predominantly absent, but into that darkness God comes and He intensely intensely reveals Himself. And with that, it can be a difficult word that must be yielded to even though it's hard. And we can expect that in that the word is going to spread. People yield. And as we think about this, we have to recognize that this is so often how God acts. 
In fact, this is probably something that we've experienced in our own lives as we've come along in the Christian faith. You just think about your own process of faith as you reflect on God's uh, working in your own heart. There, there are times, I think back on my own life, where, where the Word of God uh, has been predominantly absent, so many distractions, so many other things going on. I, I'm, I'm just removed from a regular consideration of the truth of Christ and the bigness of Christ. Those seasons were there. And then in the midst of those seasons, that intense revelation does come, maybe under the sound of gospel preaching. For me, I've told you before, it was listening to Alistair Begg's sermons, and all of a sudden, I couldn't get enough, and it came to me with power, and it convicted me of my sin, and it convicted me of the bigness of Christ, and all of these kinds of things. It comes in that powerful way and draws us out in terms of the things we need to be yielding to, even as a message can be difficult for us. The Word of God comes to us, and it's a difficult message. We reflect on that in our own spiritual experience. It doesn't come to us and say, just go on living like you are. No, it comes with new life and says, follow in the way of Christ and find eternal life there, which means we forsake things and turn back uh, to, the, to the way that, that Christ calls us to live. And then in that context, uh, things spread. Isn't that the effect it has on us? We're not left where we were before, but now through our life and through our word, uh, the gospel uh, kind of starts to, 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 to ooze out of us in different ways. In the conversations we have, in the relationships we have, things have become different. This is how God works personally in our lives, even as we see Him working this way on the historical scene. This is the way God works. And of course, we also know this is the way God works climactically. Ultimately, when we're in the Old Testament, we're not just reading these stories because they give us examples that allow us to go on in a life of faith with some instructional help. Ultimately, when we come to the Old Testament, we realize, as we always say, <coughs> excuse me, that they're pointing us forward to the significance of Jesus and His work. <coughs> Got too excited. Sorry. Jesus and His work. The point of the Old Testament Scriptures is to help us recognize Jesus when He comes on the scene. And here we are. We're a week out from Advent Sunday's beginning. We think through, we think through the ministry of Jesus. And what was the context of Jesus' birth? Well, weren't the people so far from God? The religious leaders who should have been serving the people were getting fat off the people. Then there'd been 400 years of prophetic silence. The Word of God was gone. But then the Word broke in. God the Son Himself, the eternal Word, He entered our human experience. That's very intense revelation. That there's no more intense revelation than the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, the living Word, His revelation was uniquely difficult also. It was difficult in that He calls us to take up our cross and follow Him. To take up that instrument of personal, of personal death to self and go in His way, yield to Him as King, go in the way of life. It was a word that made people angry enough to kill Him. It was also a word that caused others to yield to Him. And that difficult word, that word of repentance and faith, sacrifice and life, that word ultimately prevailed, didn't it? Jesus dies, but He rises, He ascends, and the refrain all through the book of Acts is what? Again and again and again, the word of God increase, the Word of God spread, the Word of God was proclaimed, out it goes. So what do we expect when people are far from God? Well, we expect His Word to be predominantly absent for a time, but we also expect it to be intensely revealed. We expect it to be uniquely difficult, but we also expect it to spread. And in the spreading of the Word, uh, there is this victorious expansion of the kingdom of God and this yielding to His anointed King, which actually is what the rest of First and Second Samuel is about. The expansion of the victory of God and yielding to His anointed King. 
which is climaxed, of course, in the significance of the person of Christ. So, so all of this, it helps us. It gives us light to see by in terms of our own day. And, and we're not left discouraged. We can actually be left encouraged because there can ultimately uh, be nothing that hinders the grace-filled uh, grace and ultimate saving word of the living God. It comes and it does its work. And we, can take, and we can take great comfort in that. And this passage helps us be reminded of those kinds of truths. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that it would be renewing to our hearts. Uh, we pray that we would see Christ for who he is, that we would be brought along in a, a yielding to your word, even when your word is hard, knowing that ultimately your word is life. Uh, we desire to follow you as faithful, uh, as your faithful people. And help, we ask that you would help us to this end. In Jesus' name. Amen.